this morning at uh, 8.50, there were folks who gathered in this place to pray for you. They walked uh, through, up and down the roads, and prayed that God would move in your life. Uh, the, uh, the acronym MOVE stands for More of Christ. It stands for uh, Openness to the Gospel victory over sin, and then we prayed for each other. And so I just want you to know this morning you've been prayed for. It reminded me years ago when I worked on my doctorate, my project was the power of prayer and preaching, how the prayers of the people can affect the preaching of the preacher. And it reminded me this morning as we were walking up and down the rows in here in such a sweet spirit in this place, uh, of that old song that says, Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? And then that chorus says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Brethren, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. And that is our prayer this morning. And so we're going to jump into this topic of marriage, and it just runs right along in Ephesians. So if you were here last week, you know we've got a front and a back. We, uh, I did Ephesians 6 last week just because it was Father's Day, going back to grab Ephesians 5, and then we'll finish Ephesians uh, uh, 6, 5 through 9, and then get into the armor of God. And we've got a few more weeks in Ephesians. But we look at this idea this morning of marriage, and uh, all of this the, the marriage relationship, the parenting relationship, and the boss-employee relationship is built around verse 18 of Ephesians 5. So go look. And it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So I'm going to say to you this morning that the commands for us in relationships are impossible apart from being filled with the Spirit. You cannot do what I am going to preach to you today. And so some of you are going to say, well, why am I here? Uh, you cannot do it unless the Spirit fills you. And the Spirit cannot fill you unless you're empty of everything else. You say, well, Jerry, what, should, uh, what, what are the things that could be in me that would keep the Spirit from filling me? And I would just say in two words, unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. If there's unrepentant greed, if there's unrepentant lying, if there's unrepentant sexual sin, if there's unrepentant uh, dishonesty, unrepentant gossip, any unrepentant sin in your life keeps the Spirit from filling you. Because that sin 
the word fill means that's all that's in there, right? And so since Paul says in verse 18, but be filled, that, that uh, progression of that verb, it's a present progressive command, be being filled with the Spirit, this is what you cannot do unless the Spirit fills you. All right, so uh, three things you cannot do unless the Spirit fills you. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Number one, wives, submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ. You cannot do that unless the Spirit fills you. So much has been made of the word submit. It isn't super popular today, I get that. Uh, but to understand submission, Paul, uh, as Paul describes it here, you've got to keep reading. Notice why the wife is to submit to the husband. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So the model for submission is Jesus and the church. Notice how Paul describes Jesus' relationship to the church connected with the idea of submission. Don't miss this. He is, Jesus is, the church's Savior. Look at this. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Uh, Paul could have said that Jesus is himself its Lord. He could have said Jesus is himself its master. But when he introduces the idea of submission, he goes to the quality and the act of Jesus' saving work. John Stott says his headship expresses care rather than control, responsibility rather than rule. So Jesus' headship of the church here is presented as one who has saved us. So in that light, then, uh, wives view submission to their husband as Christ, as the church is to Christ, and we view that because he saved us, we gladly submit to him. Just as Jesus is the Savior of the body, then the husband is the protector of the wife. That's what we discover here, is that just as Jesus is the Savior of the body, the husband is to be the protector of the wife. It is the husband who is to stand between the world and his wife. It is the husband who is to stand between the pressures of life and his wife. Under the Mosaic law, the husband could protect his wife from carrying out a rash vow and thus protect her reputation. Adam failed in this regard, didn't he? He did not protect Eve when the serpent came in the garden. He failed and plunged all of humanity into sin. However, God did not throw away the idea of submission with Adam's failure. 
Look at verse 23. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There is no indication that a wife's submission is to be based on the degree to which her husband follows Jesus. And that may be shocking to you. In fact, it is very likely that some husbands in Paul's day in Ephesus did not respond to the gospel. They were not believers. We know that to be the case when Peter writes to believing wives on how to win their unbelieving husbands. Second, the wife's submission is not to be because a husband commands it, but because she is doing it as to the Lord. So this requires some explanation. Here Paul says everything. Is there a time when a wife should not submit to her husband? Look at all three of these relationships. A child to his or her parents. A boss to his or her employee. Yes, there will be those times. Wives should never submit to anything that violates God's law. Never submit to anything that violates God's law. This includes physical, verbal, or sexual abuse. There is absolutely no place for a domineering husband who speaks down to his wife who verbally assaults her day in and day out, who demeans her in front of others. There is never a time, never a time, when a man is to put his hands on his wife except in a caring way. There is never a time when sexual aggression in the bedroom is acceptable regardless of where our culture is, regardless of what you watch on television, regardless of how superstars treat their spouses and get by with it. There is never, ever, ever a time when it is acceptable. If you are here in this room this morning and you are in an abusive relationship, you need to find a way to exit this situation and get help you need. You are not ever intended women to be abused, ever. It is never, ever acceptable in any way, in any form, in any fashion. And it is pervasive. It is pervasive in my counseling right now. It is pervasive in our culture. It is pervasive. And it is a perversion. You, husbands, are to be the on earth, not in a salvation sense, but in other senses, savior of your wife, not abuser of her. 
Secondly, this includes any form of breaking the law, whether it's collusion to cheat on your taxes, to defraud your neighbor, or to hurt someone else. There is never to be anything that violates God's law that you as a wife say yes to. Submission is practically hard, I think, in two cases. A wife whose personality is naturally dominant and a wife whose husband's behavior or demeanor makes it difficult to submit. So how do you do it? Because some of you are there. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. What about that? They may not obey the word, but they will be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What is the second impossible thing for us to do unless the Spirit fills us? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Someone has noted there are 41 words for wives and 116 for husbands. That should tell us something, men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Just as the wife is to submit to her husband regardless except in conditions that break God's law, the husband is to love his wife regardless. Uh, This refers to love irrespective of merit, even to the undeserving and unloving. Its intent is to seek the highest good in the one loved. So just as the wife's submission is not dependent upon the husband's response, neither is a husband's love dependent upon her wife's, his wife's response. The command for husbands to love their wives is unique. It isn't found in the Old Testament. It's interesting. It isn't found in the literature of the rabbis or it isn't in the household codes of the Greeks or the Romans. This was a revolutionary idea, clearly a Christian one. In order to get at the love husbands are to have for their wives, we must and get to look into the love Jesus has for the church and you might not have ever thought of this. I had not until I was preparing. This is the only time in the Bible in the New Testament that Jesus' love for the church is mentioned. Isn't that interesting? 
So it's in connection with the husband's love for his wife, his Jesus' love for his church. So what does it look like? Here it is. And gave himself up for her. And gave himself up for her. It means to give oneself over to. To hand oneself over. Please hear this. Christ loved the church. That's you and me. Not because we were lovable but in order to make us lovable. We've got to get that. Christ loved the church not because we are lovable. He didn't pick out lovable people. He picked out people he chose to make lovable. Why? That he might sanctify her to be set aside for God's service. So Jesus loves us in order to set us apart, to make us different than. Having cleansed her, it is the moral cleansing. We sang about it this morning. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He loved us, cleansing us with his death on the cross. Now, I'm going to dive down just a tad deep uh, in theology for a moment because this causes people to stumble. Some of you are saying, if Jesus has already cleansed me by the washing uh, of water with, and his, with his blood, then why is it that this week I sinned? If I am morally clean already, why do I still struggle with sin? So the word sanctify means to set apart. That's literally what it means. It's a, not a, a really uh, a fancy term. It's a simple term that means to set apart. Uh, Wanda came into uh, uh, the office recently. Wanda works in her offices, and she had a box of lead pencils in her hand. And she said, she showed them to me. I'm about to reveal another level of nerdiness uh, that I possess. But she showed them to me, and she said, if I understand correctly, these are yours. I looked at her, and I said, are they Pentel P205s? And she said, like, who knows the name of a pencil? <laughs> and so she raised the turn the box over, and I said, oh, there they are, Pentel P205s. Yes, those are mine. She said, Robin told me before she left these were yours. I was making sure I was hiding them so nobody else could get them. And so Wanda got a raise. Um, just kidding, don't have that power. But at any rate, she sanctified them. That's what the word means. She just set them apart for me. Um, sanctification is that when you, whatever age it was, came to Christ, God set you apart for him. He said, oh, she's mine. He's mine. He set you apart. That's called positional sanctification happens the moment just like that the moment you're saved you're positionally set apart from the rest of your life you operate from that position i'm a set apart follower of jesus that's your position all right 
But then the rest of your Christian life, you work it out. That's progressive sanctification. That is today and tomorrow and the next and the next. Living for the Lord. By the washing of water with the word. All right, so the blood positionally sanctifies you. The washing of water with the word progressively sanctifies you. So I love you, and I say this boldly. The reason some of you are dirty this morning is because you've not been washed with the water and the word since last Sunday. It's the reason. There's not yet in you this daily habit of going to the Word and allowing the Word to progressively sanctify you. That, that's what Paul means. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Why does Jesus give us both his blood and his word? The blood to positionally sanctify us, set apart for him, uh, us for himself, and the word to progressively sanctify us day in and day out, to shape our wills and our attitudes, to change our hearts, to change our behavior. Now, we have that whole vivid picture. If you want a corollary of this image of God being the groom and Israel being the bride, it's graphic. I'll warn you, go to Ezekiel 16. As a matter of fact, let me just go there for a moment to Ezekiel 16. In Ezekiel 16, there is this uh, conversation that is being had between God and Ezekiel. And again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of Canaanites. Verse 4, and as for your birth on the day that you were born, your your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What is God saying through Ezekiel to Israel? You didn't look pretty. When you came into being, I didn't choose you because you were all that. I didn't choose you because you were appealing. Verse 6, and when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood. What a picture. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I, I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. This is God talking of his people Israel. These are graphic terms that God uses to describe a love that he has for his people Israel. This is the Old Testament uh, prefix of the New Testament, Christ in the church. 
And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. You can just read on and on of what God did for Israel, which is what Christ did for us when he died for us. And he washed us. He cleaned us. You say, Jerry, what's the point of all this? The way that Jesus loved the church to positionally sanctify her and to progressively sanctify her through the ongoing washing of the water with the word is the way husbands, you and I are to love our wives. We say, what does that look like? Let me give you just a couple indicators. All right, so this isn't easy for us. There are 116 words for us, right? So two-thirds of the sermons for the husbands, one-third for wives. Wives, you can sit back and relax now. This is all to, to the men in your life. What is it? Number. What does it mean? It means this, that if you've been married five years, your wife should love God more now than she did five years ago because of your blessing on her life. That's what that means. It means that you in such a way usher in the presence of God, that you in such a way usher in the grace of God, that you in such a way bring your family, bring your wife, bring them to this place of grace that they look at you and go, thank you. That's what it means. I would go so far as to say this, Husbands, that the look, the expression on your wife's face is your responsibility. That you ought to be able to look her in the eyes. And what you see there is your first and primary mission field. And that if by some unforeseen circumstance, you see the world begin to lure her away. Maybe by the promise of more or better or different. If you see something begin to well up within her that draws her away from the Lord, then you As her husband, by God's grace, draw her back. Speak truth in love. That's how you and I love our wives like Christ loved the church. I, I told you that none of this is possible unless we're filled with the Spirit. The order is tall. Third, husbands, love your wives like you love your own body. 
Paul now turns from the spiritual reality of Christ's love for the church and just turns to natural law, just, just how we love our own bodies. Look at verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So let's define a couple of words. To nourish is to meet physical, psychological, and spiritual needs. That's what that word means. To meet physical, psychological, and spiritual needs. These may come soon. They may come later. Anxiety can come out of nowhere. There will be things, men, that your wife will encounter that you will not for the simple reason that she's a woman. She could face issues as soon as a baby is born that send her into a depression that you may never experience. But in that moment, you step in and step up. She could face issues in the middle of her life that you will never face because of her own body and the way it works. When she does, you step in and you step up. If our church is any indication, cancer is more dominant among women than men. If it just happens, I don't know the stats on this, it just is. That means more than likely there are more men in this room who will have to step up in a cancer diagnosis than there are women. And so you do. To cherish is to keep warm. It means to cherish with tender care. The word tender. Stu Weber wrote a book years ago, I read then, Tender Warrior. As men, we are called to be strong. The feminization of men in America is a sad thing. We are called to be strong, but we are called to be tender. Tender warriors we are. Therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I would see in the marriage a mirror of what happens in the church. Immediately when you come to Christ, you're in. You are positionally sanctified. Immediately when you get married, you're one flesh. But also, you'll see the word become. When you come to faith in Christ, you become more like him over time. And when you get married, you become one flesh more and more and more over time. It doesn't happen right then, does it? No, it doesn't. I sat with a couple this week. Week one of premarital counseling, you know, smiles are everywhere. Joy abounds. Love flows. Reasons they want to get married could fill the whole hour session. Right? Bring the same couple in 20 years from now. And if the marriage is good, the reasons are different. They're so different. And all of a sudden, have any of you noticed this? The longer you're together, the more you're alike. And you're like, what is happening to me? Why, oh, why am I like this? 
You know, what is, what's going on here? Recently, Wendy said, you know, I, I'm just kind of tired of people. I'm like, oh, I've rubbed off bad. I'm an introvert. She's an extrovert. This is not how it works. When I don't want to be with people, I send her. You know, this is how we've done this for years. And all of a sudden, she's getting tired of them. Now, am I supposed to like them more? You know, there's all of these things. Isn't it funny how things happen? And, and the longer you're married, just the things. And, uh, recently, Wendy and I were driving down the road, and I looked at her, and I asked her a question. She said, oh, my gosh, that's what was on my mind right then. And so I thought, did she read my mind right before that? That could be problematic, right? It, it, but, but that's how we do. It, it is. You leave and cleave, and the two become one flesh. That's not easy. That takes work. It's, it's hard. Look at this, and hold fast to. It literally means to be glued to. It, it can be compared to two, and we can't miss this object lesson, to two, two distinct things that are glued together, but each maintain their own features. So let me talk about unity, what it isn't, what it is, because unity is essential in a church, and it's essential in a marriage. Unity is not uniformity. Unity does not require that you look and act alike. And all God's people said, Amen. Opposites attract, don't they? Some of you are sitting here and you're daylight and dark, but God brought you together. Unity is not unanimity. Unity does not require 100% agreement on all things. That is not the case, right? It just isn't. You will not always agree. Unity is union. It is two becoming one. That's what unity is. It is union. It is over time to become one. Read this a couple weeks ago. You ever read something and you think, wow, I wish I'd come up with that? Here's what unity is. It's a hammer. You say, what? A hammer is two things, isn't it? It is a head that's purpose is to hit something, and it is a handle. When you put the head and the handle together, they don't lose their distinctiveness. Because if the head became like the handle, then you couldn't nail anything. And if the handle became like the head, you couldn't hold it to nail anything. But when the two come together, they work as one, though they are distinct. That is marriage. That's marriage. What you can do with the handle and with the head, you, you can't do without them. Every couple, I ask this question in premarital counseling, what is it that God wants to do with the two of you together that would not have been accomplished if you had not gotten married? What is that? What is that? All right, so I just looked to my right. I'm going to pick on them. They're going to hate me for this. I see Ben and Chelsea. And do you know what that is for them? It's adoption. That's what it is. The two of them come together, and together they adopt kids. Be a whole lot harder if they didn't have each other. That's 
union. That's marriage. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and all God's people say, amen. It is. But Paul's not talking about marriage. He's saying in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You can preach a whole sermon on that one verse. No time for that. Here's what I find amazing here, and it really is good, is that if you look at good marriages, so what are good marriages? They're, they're not perfect at all. So, so get that out of your mind. They're loving. He loves, she respects. He leads, she submits. That's what good marriages are. They're consistent over time. If you look at those good marriages, and I've found through the years that people long for that, young couples long to be around, those couples who are doing that have a vibrant, loving, exciting marriage. If, if you look at them, you will get an earthly glimpse of the relationship between Christ and the church. The mystery that Paul talks about is this unbelievable love relationship between Christ and the church. And what he says here, that when a husband loves his wife and a wife respects her husband, you kind of get behind the mystery of the church. You say, well, how important is that? A church, then, will not be stronger than its marriages. Uh, A church will not be known for what a church is if the marriages in that church don't somehow take the eyes off and, uh, and pull the curtain back to the mystery of Christ in the church. So I'm going to give you a tool uh, that we got at a, a marriage one-night event here last year. You can grab this as you go. Four questions for you to have a check-in every week with your husband, with your wife. The four questions, you'll be able to grab the card. How did I feel loved? How did you feel loved last week? Is there anything I need to apologize for? How can I be a better spouse? How can I pray for you? A weekly check-in for you to have, for you to use. Let's pray.